weird times, creepy crimes, and unexplained phenomena. If it's weird and it's in Florida, it's on the SoFlo Weird Show. I'm your host and head weirdo, Mia Lorenzo. If you've ever been torn between good and evil, then you'll surely relate to this episode. It's all about sinners and saints. From the life and crimes of Florida's infamous strippers, to repenting your sins at Daytona Beach's drive-in church, and finally, a look at the true Garden of Eden. Yes, that Garden of Eden, where the first sin originated in Bristol, Florida. For my sinful beginning, I am joined once again by my partner in crime and legal eagle, Chris Mancini, and fellow weirdo, Pilar. Our first case begins with the former notorious prostitute, Kathy Willits, who gained national attention when she was arrested in 1991 for not just what she did, but what her husband did while she entertained her clients. Well, the part I like about Kathy's story the most is that she was married to a Broward County Sheriff. And the Broward County Deputy Sheriff, and Broward County Sheriff's Office has had a long history of corruption, especially back in the 30s when the sheriff himself was co-owner of all of the gambling joints in Broward County, along with Meyer Lansky, the most famous gangster in the history of America. But that's for another day. <laughs> Today we're going to talk about Kathy. That's a typical of South Florida roots. Well, you know, all, yeah. that's right. Roots is, the, roots is the term because we have crime deeply embedded right down to our roots to the point where it upholds many of our so-called honest institutions in this city. And that's why I always find stories like this so interesting. When Kathy Willits uh, was caught, it was because her husband, Jeff, was videotaping her having sex with a politician from the closet of their home. Jeff got bored, fell asleep, and fell out of the closet. (laughs) (laughs) The gentleman in question jumped up, put his pants on, and ran out the door and reported what was going on. Now, what Kathy and Jeff had been doing for quite some time was soliciting via um, different types of articles and different types of low-rent magazines and newspapers. Anybody that was willing to give them, fit the, fit the bill, and was willing to provide them with a business card. Because if you didn't send them a business card, they weren't interested. But if you did, and you were a politician or someone of means, you were in. So Kathy was busy having sex with these guys. Jeff was busy having videotaping his wife having sex with these guys. And then it all came to light on that occasion. And a guy by the name of Doug Danziger, who was the vice mayor of Fort Lauderdale, got outed. But there was a list of other people, famous people, famous wealthy people, all men, of course, from South Florida, who Kathy was threatening to disclose. And she hired an attorney by the name of Ellis Rubin. And then there was a big deal about Rubin having uh, the list and and uh, being willing to sell it to uh, Access America or one of those, uh, you know, TV disclosure shows like TMZ is now, but that didn't exist then. And then all this got worse and worse and worse. And as Miami began to stink more and more from the stench, people began (laughs) to love it more and more and more. Because, you know, there's one line of thought that there's a reason why Miami is the epicenter for all these sex scandals. And we've had tons of sex scandals is because we want people to come down here and enjoy sex without boundaries. I mean, we've been doing that since the 1930s. So moving on, I love this next one. This was Zorita, the snake snake dancer. dancer. This is... 
This is, I've seen videos of Zarita, and it's almost, she's like intoxicating to watch. It, however, the videos that I saw, she has like a bubble. She was started out as a bubble dancer, no? Well, that was, I think that was Sally Rand for the most part. Sally oh, Rand Sally did Rand, the bubble right. and the fan dancing. Right. And during, during the war, when she was really popular, there were all these postcards that servicemen would buy that they would then send to Sally saying, Sally, we love your act. Please lose the fan. <laughs> but, you know, course, everybody, you've ever seen those World War II uh, movies where they always have a, a woman as uh, time, kind of the, uh, the mascot for the ship. And on the way to war, you had to touch it on the way yes. out to arm your guns. Uh, yeah. yes. So she was big for that. Ah, Zor- okay. Zorita was more of a local, although she was somewhat around the country. But Zorita, I got to say. And this the, is the 30s, right? Yeah. Is this the 30s? Yeah. And 1939 was, I think, the height of her her era. And the thing that I find most interesting about Zarita was that I really do believe she was a precursor for women's rights. Zarita took no crap from anybody. If you, when the police arrested her, which they frequently did, she stood up to them every time. She went to court. She defied their authority over them. Yeah, she was a tough lady. And really all she was doing was stripping. Mm -hmm. She wasn't engaged in prostitution per se. She's no Kathy Willits. But the thing with that people... But the, yeah, no, she's no Kathy Willits. But the thing that I think upset the people the most was when she would take her snake out for a walk. And she, there'd usually be someone to be there to take her picture. She'd arranged it. And of the course. picture would show up on the, on the front page of the newspaper, Life Magazine, and all the prudes and the prurience, which, yeah. by the way, Miami's always had its purience and its prudence. People right. that yeah. were very much against any form of sexual activity. And that's been the struggle in Miami between these, you know, lots of times there were church groups, but sometimes there were uh, councils and, and committees that were set up to try and drive sex underground mm-hmm. and make sure that nobody talked about it and that Miami was not seen as a center for sex. You could come here, but you couldn't have sex. You could bring your money <laughs> if you're a tourist, right. but you couldn't have sex. And you couldn't drink and right. you couldn't gamble. So what was the point? Yeah. You know? However, something like that drives it right up, doesn't it? Exactly. <laughs> it drives up that And it I also think that it's interesting that she would call a photographer to have to be photographed with the snake, kind of what celebrities do now. Exactly. Right. Absolutely. She was, she was a precursor. I think she really yeah. was a precursor yeah. for what later came. Mm-hmm. And not to mention the fact she was an absolutely beautiful woman and she was articulate. She could speak on her own behalf. And, you know, she would say things like, well, my act is kind of corny, but people like it. You know, she was self-deprecating. So this wasn't, um, I don't know, kind of brassy, nasty, in-your-face person. She just had a point of view. She felt she had a right to pursue it, and no one was going to stop her. So I I think Zarita was a hero. I love Zarita. A heroine ahead of her time. Mm -hmm. And she had an interesting prop. The snake. Everywhere she went, she had that snake wrapped around her, her neck. And carefully over her private parts. It's like exotic and erotic. Right. You know what I mean? Yeah. That's what I was getting at. But you had the balls to say it. I didn't. <laughs> exactly. So so that's the story of uh, Zarita the Snake Dancer. All right. Our next case um, deals with Kendall Coffey. Ah, yes. Mr. Coffey, the United States Attorney, yeah. the highest law enforcement officer in the Southern District of Florida being the head of all federal law enforcement and by virtue of the way in which the hierarchy works, all state law enforcement beneath him. Mr. Coffey, 1996, I don't know if you remember, um, 
there was a famous duo, Falcone and Magluda, who were the heads of the Offshore Powerboat Racing Association. And I had a piece of that case when I was, I had left the United States Attorney's Office, but I was representing one of the witnesses in the case against Fal uh, Falcone and Magluda. And they were acquitted, or the jury hung. They, could, they did not convict. And this was a big case, big, big case, that Coffee had uh, staked the best in the office, uh, staked his reputation, had assigned the best prosecutors in the office. And when he, when he lost, he was extremely embarrassed. So the story goes, he went out to a place by the name of Lipsticks, which is a famous strip club down in South Miami. And he basically had a little too much to drink and bit one of the strippers. <laughs> so the joke, Excuse me? Yeah. And the joke has always been that Kendall Coffey took a bite out of crime. <laughs> literally. It's like McGruff. Uh, remember, literally. Remember McGruff? The, the <laughs> yeah. dog took a the crime bite dog. out of crime. Yeah. He announced his resignation when all this came out. Shortly thereafter, they summoned him to Washington to explain, and he went up to Washington and told whatever story, and I think they told him, you know, I don't think you should be the chief law enforcement officer <laughs> no. of the Southern District of Florida anymore, and he resigned from his office. By all accounts, he's a nice guy. Okay. And, he, you know, he's a guy of integrity. and He, he bit just, off more than he could chew. Or bit off more than he could chew, exactly. <laughs> That was Chris Mancini and Pilar giving us an insight to Florida's seedy history. Now is the time to repent for our sins, and for that, there's no better place than Daytona Beach's drive-in church. When I look up the address to the drive-through church, I see that it's right along A1A, and I get excited thinking that, that it's gonna be beautiful right off the beach. But on this particular morning, it's cold, damp, and a big fog has rolled in. I look to my left and I just see a blanket of white fog. I know the ocean's there, but I just can't see it. I pass a bunch of typical beachside attractions. You've got old cheesy motels, t-shirt shops. Then that gives away to beautiful homes and high rises. And all of a sudden I see church by the sea. And it's been a long time since I've been to church. I'm almost happy that it's outside and I get to stay in the comfort of my own car so that I don't feel judged when I come in. Not the church folk judge, but also that I don't want the roof to cave in because it's been so long. I'm greeted Hi, by an elderly, soft-spoken gentleman. Uh, thank you, thank you very much. So I just drive up there. Just park anywhere you like. Who hands me a shot of wine and a wafer for the communion and I drive on through. I gotta be honest with you, kind of excited. Tuned to 88.5. To give them all a better start. And that preacher whispered, can't you see the promised land? As he laid that blood-stained Bible in that hooker's hands, there are three wooden crosses on the right side. It's obvious this was once an old drive-in movie house. In fact, it was the Neptune movie theater that opened in 1953. And three years later, church services were offered on Sundays. I face a two-story building with a second-floor wraparound balcony that serves as an altar. 
This is where Pastor Bob Kemp Beard steps up to his pulpit and delivers his sermon. Worship with us this day and to bring his gift of music to inspire us. Let's say thank you one more time. I ask Pastor Bob what he loves about working in this unique format. I would have to say the opportunity for people to worship outdoors. I, I, it's an amazing opportunity and not one that comes along very often. It takes me back to experiences in my life of, of camp and conferences for young people where we would uh, live and, and worship and, and share life together outdoors. And, and uh, those were special times in my life. Um, and I sort of bring those memories to this experience as well. But I just think the opportunity uh, to worship outdoors, to be just right across the street from that amazing Atlantic Ocean and to see the wildlife that comes and and enters into this worship space during our our time of worship. It can be distracting from time to time, but it's also a celebration of what God has done and given us as a gift. Taste and see the goodness of God. As we sing together, let us gather at the table of the Lord. Uh, we do the service from an A-frame two-story building on the west side of the property that has a balcony on it so I can be outside with the people as they worship in their cars and um, uh, they can see me and I can see their cars. I can't see them necessarily. But we also have a building in the center of the property called the Friendship Hall and it's set up not only for fellowship on Sunday mornings and during the week but also as a worship space for people who do want to come inside to worship and we have entrances to the facility two off of a1a and one off of peninsula that's what i was going to ask like if you didn't have a car was there a place for you to come and worship so it's it's not like car only right and we have people who walk in from the neighboring uh, neighborhoods and from the condos along a1a we have people who ride their bikes in depending on the weather and things like that and we also have uh, little um, outdoor seating areas park benches set up so that people can enjoy the service sitting outdoors I got to tell you, my favorite part was the horn honking. Yeah, it takes a little bit of getting used to, but um, but it is a a, uh, a unique thing of, of an outdoor setting. I suppose if you were in uh, many churches, the congregation would respond either by clapping or by saying amen or hallelujah or yeah, something right. like that. So those are our uh, hands put together and, and amens and hallelujahs. What do you think the attraction is for people to come here? I mean, I have to be honest with you. When I pulled in, I thought, wow, this is... It's a fun thing, you know, it's different. There's something about, I mean, this is just from my experience, something about the comfort of being in my car. I'm not in the church, like, on, so to speak, you know. So you are a, a bit more relaxed, yeah. I guess I would say. But what do you hear from people? What do they say? Why they love coming? Besides your wonderful <laughs> service and talent. <laughs> well, I would say that um, I, I would go back to the the 
early beginning mission of this church, and that was to meet the needs of people who would come to the area on vacation, who may not have the dress-up clothes that you would wear to church in the 1950s or 60s, uh, but who still wanted a worship experience, and they could come here uh, dressed, ready to go to the beach right afterwards, or get on with their their vacation plans afterwards, but they would have a, a nice and meaningful worship service in a very unique setting prior to that. And I know that a lot of people still come because of that. They'll come back to the Daytona Beach area now year after year after year, and they'll come and see us on a Sunday morning. But more than that, I think people now are um, wanting to experience uh, God in the outdoors, that they find uh, a, a closeness with uh, God in nature. And this uh, worship atmosphere certainly provides that. We also try to be a church that, um, that meets the needs of people who would worship here every Sunday. And so we offer the different fellowship groups and Bible studies and service opportunities that other churches in the community offer so that we can kind of meet those spiritual needs as well of those who call this their church home. I grew up in this church. I'm an old timer here. This is Melissa France. She is the director of the Youth and Family Ministries, but her history with this church goes way back. Um, my parents, my dad was raised Southern Baptist and my mom was raised Roman Catholic. And I can remember as a kid kind of church shopping to find one that we could all worship together. I remember going to mass and my dad sitting in the parking lot. And I can remember going to Baptist services and my mom just being like, no. <laughs> And so a friend invited us to come here, and it was a home run. It was the only place that they could both stay for the entire service and be okay with it. So I was about probably 11 or 12 when I joined the church. There was nothing for children or youth. Mm -hmm. um, it was just the Sunday service. You sat in your car, and then you left. And uh, my mom saw a need and started the Sunday school program with my sister and I, and then the friend that invited us had two children as well. And so with four kids, we started the Sunday school and, and God works in crazy ways. So here I am now leading their children and youth uh, ministry all these years later. Tell me what you think of Pastor Bob. Pastor Bob brought a whole different style of leadership here to the church when he came. He has taught us that this is not a one-man show and that anyone is just as capable of doing anything in ministry as he is that yet you know somebody can go visit the sick and pray with the sick or visit someone in the hospital or take someone a meal just as easily as he can and can sit down and pray with people and talk about the bible just as well as he can that we're all in this together so our culture has really shifted and has allowed us to really develop a wonderful sense of community and connection Cindy Lumpkin is also an integral part of that church community as the administrative assistant. Her first experience with the church was out of curiosity and somewhat skepticism. I was coming in to uh, just check it out. It seemed, it seemed like it was um, a touristy thing. You know, it was like, oh, a drive-in church, that's interesting. Let's go check it out, you know. Um, so I came just to see what it was all about. Like, this is where people came when they were on vacation coming to the beach. And it wasn't really a real church, if you will. 
But once you come and you meet the people and you actually engage with the people here, it is a real church and it is real compassion and caring and loving and supporting each other. Um, it's just very unique, <laughs> very unique, as you probably have seen. And so. you think that's what draws people back here time and I time do. again? I do. I think it's the people. It's it's definitely the people that that all work together and love each other and care about each other and lift each other up. Today. And as we all go forth, may we go forth with the knowledge that God really does love you and desires for you to share that love with others. And the people of God said, Amen. As we close our discussion of sinners and saints, it's only fitting that we take you to the origin of the primordial sin, where our original weirdo Charlie Carlson tells the tale of Florida's own Garden of Eden. If you thought the Garden of Eden was somewhere in the Middle East, forget it. It was in Bristol, Florida, or so the legend goes. I heard about this astonishing revelation a few years ago and decided to check it out for myself. Bristol, located in Liberty County, looks like any other small town in northern Florida, except this was where Adam and Eve got their start, according to the late L.V.E. Calloway, a Baptist preacher during the 50s. Sure, it sounds far-fetched, but hang on a minute. Reverend Calloway may have been on to something, or perhaps on something. Reverend Calloway studied the area for 50 or more years and discovered a significant number of features that match the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden. He pointed out that Genesis 2.10 states that a river went out of Eden to water the garden, and from hence it was parted and became into four heads. That sounds exactly like the Apalachicola River, which does indeed split into four rivers, or more if you count every little tributary along its course. Callaway claimed that only two rivers in the world fit this description, one in Siberia and the other Apalachicola. I doubt that Eden was in Siberia. It's too cold there. Adding a bonus to Callaway's theory is the Terea tree. The only place in the world where these rare trees grow is near Bristol, Florida. And what is the Terea tree? It's also called the gopher wood tree as in the kind that Noah used to build the ark. These are rare trees, a conifer variety scientifically known as Terea taxifolia, were discovered in 1834 by Hardy Kroom, a local farmer and an amateur botanist. When Kroom could not identify the trees, he contacted renowned botanist Dr. John Torrey of Columbia College. The Terea is named for Dr. Torrey, who officially declared the trees a newly discovered genus. These trees once grew worldwide before the last ice age, and why a small number have survived in Florida is a real mystery. In 1933, the state legislature passed a law protecting the Terea. The only place you can see these unusual trees is the alleged site of the Garden of Eden and a few miles up the road at the Terea State Park. The Apalachicola River has cut a wide valley through this part of the state in which grows an impressive range of botanical species that are found in no other part of Florida. Callaway, taking an extra step in his research, identified 28 trees growing here that are mentioned in the Bible. Of course, one might point out the absence of apple trees and demand to know where Eve got the apple that she ate, 
but local advocates of the Garden of Eden theory will quickly point out that Genesis makes no mention about an apple. That's right, Eve ate from the tree of knowledge, and I'm sure it's growing somewhere around Bristol. In the early 1950s, followers of Reverend Calloway erected an entrance to the Garden of Eden and made nature trails through the woods along the bluffs overlooking the Apalachicola River. There were signs identifying various points of interest, including one that proclaimed the place to be the birthplace of Adam. Calloway's Garden of Eden attracted so many visitors that he was approached by a promoter suggesting it be developed as a tourist attraction. In 1971, Calloway published his Eden theory in a book titled In the Beginning. Reverend Calloway died at the ripe age of 91, and as time went on, his Garden of Eden kind of fizzled out. But the garden, or at least the woods, is still there. I wanted to see this place for myself. After all, the roots of creation may have been in Liberty County. It was worthy of a quest, and perhaps I could find the tree of knowledge and take some fruit home. I pulled into Bristol and asked a gas station attendant, who looked a little bit like Moses, for directions to the Garden of Eden. Although Genesis makes no mention of gas stations, I was surprised when I got a response without being laughed out of town. Go back down the road and take Route 270 north a few miles, directed the attendant. You'll see Garden of Eden Road on your left and just take it to the end. Obviously, Bristol is used to getting curiosity seekers looking for the Garden of Eden. I drove out Route 270 and almost missed the small sign for the Garden of Eden Trail. At the end of the road, I found a parking area and an information kiosk, but there was no mention about the place being the original Garden of Eden. Today, this is a preserve owned and managed since 1982 by the Nature Conservancy. I looked around and all I could see was a high, dry scrub of sand pines, turkey oaks, and palmetto bushes. It certainly didn't look like the Bible's version of the Garden of Eden. Nevertheless, I hiked a winding trail for about 15 minutes. The Sand Hill Pinelands gave way to a lush forest of beech, magnolias, dogwood, holly, laurel, and tall, robust hardwoods that were thriving like crazy in this fertile place. I continued on a narrow path that trailed the edge of a deep ravine. Its slopes were covered with ferns and laced with purple flowers of wisteria and white dogwood blossoms. I looked down into the basin of this ravine and saw two colorful butterflies flittering about over a crystal clear stream of water. This place really did look like a natural garden, and I was amazed at how the environment had changed from sparse pinelands to this flourishing forest in just a short hike from my car. Now if you're wondering about serpents, I did see a large indigo snake, but he wasn't coiled in the branches of the Tree of Knowledge. I also saw a gopher tortoise, but Genesis doesn't say anything about gopher tortoises, just gopher wood. I eventually came out to a bluff overlooking the Apalachicola about 150 feet below. Nothing about this landscape looked like Florida. Actually, it reminded me of a river valley I once saw in Honduras. I scooped up a handful of reddish clay, the kind Native Americans fashioned pottery from, and figured this could have been the dust used to create Adam. I also wondered about Cain slaying his brother Abel. Was Abel buried around this place? And what about Cain, who was kicked out of Eden? The Bible says that after slaying his brother, Cain dwelt in the land of Nod on the east of Eden. Well, they may have called it Nod back then, but east of the Garden of Eden today is the Liberty County Correctional Facility. I guess that would be an appropriate place for Cain. 
One of the reasons why the Nature Conservancy purchased the 1,300-acre Garden of Eden site for preservation is because of its diversity of plant and animal life. I can't say for sure if L.V. Calloway's theory was correct, but in county property records, the official legal description for this property is the Garden of Eden tract. Therefore, I guess it really does make it the Garden of Eden. Know of a weird place or have a weird tale to tell? Go to SoFloWeird.com. If you want more Strange Florida stories, be sure to subscribe to this podcast and visit us on Facebook and Instagram. I'm Mia Lorenzo. Thank you for listening to the SoFlow Weird Show. Special thanks goes to Michelle McArdle for promotion and production assistance. This has been a Sideshow Charlie production, inspired by Florida's master of the weird, Charlie Carlson. Stay weird, everybody.